This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is in the light of your word that we see light. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we may be challenged by its central role in our life, the role it should play, and the importance that you place upon uh, the study of the word in our life and how we cannot understand things that we see and things that we experience around us unless we do so in the framework of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and I've focused on this one verse and one phrase in 2.5, because there's some things I want to talk about in terms of application. The challenge to the Ephesian church in this first short epistle at these, of these seven letters to the seven churches is to change their life. I mean, that's what this is talking about, is that they have deteriorated and regressed in their spiritual life, and there are going to be consequences unless... They recover spiritually through confession of sin and change the way they're orienting to the doctrine that they've been taught in terms of application. That's the thrust of the mandates here, to remember, repent, or Jesus will come back. This is the warning. Or else I will come to you suddenly or unexpectedly, literally, and remove your lampstand from its place. We've been analyzing the implications of this one statement. That Jesus will come back and he will remove the lampstand. The point of this is that the triune God of the Bible, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, intervene in human history. They intervene on behalf of the believer but they also interfere in our life. Now, when I use those two terms, intervene and interfere, we think of intervention as something positive, but we think of interference as something that we don't want. It has a negative connotation. And I use that word because that is the perception of the unbeliever, and that is the perception of the believer. I'm sure that that was David's perception at first when... Nathan the prophet came in to confront him with his sin, that God was just interfering in his life. And that's how we are when God often intervenes in our life in terms of divine discipline, is there is a resistance because we just want God to leave us alone and to let us live life the way we want to live it. And that's when divine discipline comes our way because God is reorienting our thinking, a little attitude adjustment. The fact that Jesus warns this congregation, not in that verse, but in the previous verse, that he will come and remove their lampstand unless they repent, tells us that there are consequences not only in the personal life of the believer for negative volition and extended carnality, but also in the congregation. And this is demonstrated in a verse in Romans 1.18. This is the mentality that I'm talking about and trying to illustrate through an extended 
series of two or three Bible classes. Romans 1.18 gives us a dynamic at work in the mentality of fallen man. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, I'm not going to exegete the whole chapter or go through it, but the context is setting up the fact that God is involved in the affairs of men. And when various cultures and civilizations in human history operate on extended negative volition, then God judges those cultures and those peoples. God is interfering in history as he is overseeing history and controlling history. So the wrath of God referred to in Romans 1.18 is not a term that refers to future judgment, as that term is used at times to refer to the tribulation period, but it is a description of God's judge, judgment in human history against civilizations that have been on negative volition and have rejected him. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the object of the wrath of God is a group of men who are engaged in the activity of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Now what does that word mean? That word suppress is the Greek verb kateko. And it is in the participial form. It's a present active participle. It has an article with it which indicates it's going to function like a substantive, like a noun. Thus, it is describing a group of people. It should be translated as it is in this, in this uh, translation as a relative clause, who suppress. And the action of, suppress, of suppression is, in, is described in the dictionary as causing something to be ineffective, to prevent something, to hinder something, or to restrain something. So the normal modus operandi of the carnal mind, either operating under sin or human good, is to restrain truth. That's the object of the verbal action here, to restrain truth, to prevent truth, to hinder truth. It has the idea also of holding truth down. This is the idea. The normal modus operandi of man is to redefine the truth. Now, if God is the source of truth, and truth is the accurate representation of reality, then what we see here is that the focus of the sin nature is to cause man to live outside the bounds of reality, to redefine reality according to his own premises, according to his own presuppositions, and according to his own agenda. And that is what lies at the bottom of all cosmic thinking. It, is, uh, it has an agenda to redefine and reshape reality in a way that excludes God. Now, they may admit at some level the presence of God talk or God language, but they don't really want God to be talked about. Don't let that become a vital, real element in culture. You know, God's just irrelevant. Now, if you want to talk about it, that's your business. See, this is one of the problems that we're getting as, we've, as I started last time talking about the judiciary and uh, the role of religion in American history, is using that as our illustration of this. The issue here for them is that we just want to marginalize any talk about God to the fringes of culture so that we can just live life the way we want to without an admission of accountability. See, that's the ultimate doctrine that we're dealing with here in Revelation 1.5, is the doctrine of personal accountability. It's a correlation to the first divine institution, which I state as human responsibility. And under the divine institution, every human being is responsible to God for their actions. We will be held accountable for those actions. And man in carnality, man in his resistance to God, his rejection of truth, doesn't want to be held accountable to God. We want to live life the way we want to live it and say, God, just fine, leave me alone and let me do it the way I want to do it. And so to do that, man has to go through some incredibly 
sophisticated mental gymnastics in order to restructure reality and to explain everything within reality according to the premise that God doesn't exist and that everything operates according to the principles of time plus chance. And I use a diagram of a circle the last couple of weeks. And we'll use this circle to indicate the boundaries of creation. Everything that God created is in that boundary. And what man wants to do in carnality is to try to explain everything inside this circle on the basis of something else that's inside that circle. And when it comes to religion, what man has done is to generate ideas about God. And, for example, you have pantheistic notions of God in in the ancient world, storm gods, nature gods, gods of war, gods of love, uh, weather gods, and they were all part of creation. So they don't stand outside of creation. They don't provide an ultimate reference point, and they're just as... They're just as susceptible to fluctuation and variables as anything else. There's no universals. And so without universals, you can't have any kind of stability. And so that everything within the circle, is the attempt is to explain it by something else within the circle. Now, we started off by talking about history. And I'm going to restructure the diagram a little bit. I'm going to put history at the bottom. Because whether you like history or not, and there may be some of you here that don't like history and think you're always bored with history and never seem to make any sense to you, history is the foundation of almost all other mental disciplines. Because you're plugging everything else into a timeline of some sort of development, and that's history. How you understand man's purpose and role and what he's doing here is history. And so when you talk about anything else, whether you talk about science, whether you talk about law or politics or economics or or literature or the arts, whatever it is, at some point it impinges on your view of history. So they take history, and in the ancient world, history was just a, a disconnected series of facts that could be manipulated by the, by the government. If you went to ancient Egypt, history was always manipulated by the Pharaoh who was viewed as being divine, who was, he was viewed as God. And, but there's no objective basis in history. So what we see from this, and what we'll see, what we should see from it is that, that there's always a theological element to our understanding of history. And history is used often in a way to, to either relate to God or to exclude God. And then I, I was using three examples, examples from law, examples from politics, and from economics. All are built on the foundation of history. You could look at many different other areas. But the attempt then is to try to explain the origin of law the origin of politics and the origin of economics from inside the circle so that you're simply using something else inside the circle as your, as your reference point. What the Bible teaches is that there is an absolute creator and there is a distinction, a radical distinction between the creation and the creator, what we call the creator-creature distinction. And it is the Creator, and in the mind of the Creator, that we have the ultimate frame of reference which gives meaning to the details that are inside this circle. So that you can't talk about history as a Christian without thinking about it in terms of his story or the outworking of the plan of God. The problem that we're addressing is that once you remove that, that Romans 1.18 wants to remove the Creator from being a reality in terms of giving any ultimate meaning to law, politics, economics, science, ethics, whatever it may be inside the circle. So there's a suppression of the truth. Let's remove the Creator. Get that out of there. There's no ultimate reference point. Everything in law is generated from within the creation. It's self-generated. 
Now, we're seeing a classic example of that right now in two areas. One is that we're seeing a negative, impact, a negative result of this in two things that happened, hit the headlines in just the last couple of weeks. One was the, the murder of the mother and the husband of the, judge, the federal judge up in Chicago. And the second event just happened this last week on Friday with this uh, criminal in Atlanta who uh, escaped from, his, from the deputy that was watching him and stole her gun and went in and murdered the court reporter and the judge and, and several other individuals. And both of these are consequences of the cultural framework we've set up because, as I'm going to show tonight, once we make the ultimate reference point for law something inside the circle then every human being becomes the ultimate reference point. This is exactly what happened in the period known as the Judges in the Old Testament. In the book of the Judges, there's a verse that's repeated twice, and that's the key to understanding history. And it's a key to understanding politics. If you're developing political theory, trying to understand uh, anything about government politics, if you don't understand the book of Genesis, you're not even at the starting gates in terms of developing a Christian understanding of law and politics. The key verse in Judges is there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's exactly where we are today. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. I was talking this last week to a lawyer who told me that, that he's never seen anything like it in the last few years. He's been in practice for 20 or 30 years. He says, in lawsuits, you'll have a group, an individual or a family bring a lawsuit against somebody, and you sit down with them and you say, you know, you can't really do this. You have A, B, C, and the conclusion is D, and that means you don't have enough evidence, you can't make your case, you can't do it. Oh, but I want to. He's wrong. I don't care. A, B, C end up meaning H. No, they don't. Doesn't matter. I want to, if it means, I want it to, it'll mean H if I want it to mean H. Why won't you listen to me and file a lawsuit? See, it's the arrogance of people. They've rejected absolutes. So once you reject an external source for values, then the only place where value can be found or determined is inside the circle of the created order. So that man then becomes the ultimate reference point for law. If, if law doesn't develop from the absolute standards of perfect righteousness and justice in the creator, if that's not there, then it can only come from someplace inside this circle. So that means you have one person over here, one individual, and we'll call him person A, over here you have person B. And law then becomes whatever person A wants it to be or person B wants it to be, and it's then just a matter of power. Who's going to be able to put himself in a position of power over the other person? And if, you make, uh, if you're put in a position of authority over me and you make one decision and I don't like it, then I'm just going to kill you and take you out because your, your view isn't any better than my view. Now, this kind of thing has always happened in history, but what we're seeing in a relativistic culture is that nobody has any source for value, so everybody becomes a source for values. And once everybody becomes a source for values and you have a thousand different competing ethical systems, then you're just in a state of anarchy. And this always leads to the destruction of a culture. Last time I developed this, and I want to finish it this evening, in an illustration that has to do with what's right at the forefront in American jurisprudence right now, and that's this decision related to the uh, presence of the Ten Commandments in the courtroom. And the focal point is on the First Amendment and the meaning of the First Amendment and the Establishment Clause. Now, as I'm doing this, I want to make sure that you don't lose the forest for the trees. The focal point here is that Jesus Christ says that if we do not obey him, then he will interfere in history in discipline. And that happens in three arenas. The first is a personal level. As fallen sinners, God is going to intervene in our life when we continue to reject him. That's Romans 1. As believers... 
God is going to intervene in your life in divine discipline in order to bring you to a point of spiritual recovery to quit walking according to the flesh and start walking by means of the Holy Spirit. That's the personal application. And see, we, we fall into the same trap in a microcosm for each one of us every time we sin. Because what we want to do is, is go through this mental gymnastic of rewriting our own history in our mind. We become historical revisionists in order to justify and rationalize sin and the reason we won't go through divine consequences that are spelled out in Scripture. See, we do it at a personal level, and all that we're seeing at a national level is what happens when you have, uh, when, when you have a vast number of people living on carnality, rejecting any kind of establishment truth, rejecting the Scriptures, and they're all wanting to follow this same uh, level of relativism and rationalism at a national level. So we have a personal level where we have application. We have a local church level, which is specifically what's happening in Revelation 2.5, and that is that a congregation takes on certain characteristics, any business, any corporation, any workplace, any group of people, develops certain characteristics. Every family represented here at West Houston Bible Church has its own culture. Uh, we, every family does certain things differently. Some families get up together. They all are morning people, and they enjoy having breakfast together. Others are made up of some morning people who hate, every, who, who are energetic every morning, and some night people who hate all the morning people in the family, and they just wish they would go away. And others are night owls, and the morning people are falling asleep in front of the television at nine o'clock, and the rest of the family wants to start doing things. Everybody's different. Every, every family is a microcosm and has its own uh, characteristics. The same thing is true of a congregation. Every congregation has certain characteristics that are the combination of the characteristics of the spiritual lives of all the people in that congregation. And so this is what the background is for these epistles where Jesus Christ is evaluating them. And he is warning this congregation that they're falling apart because they have regressed in their spiritual life since their former times when Paul wrote them in Ephesians 1. And they're no longer manifesting that same mature personal love for God the Father, which is then manifested in their personal love for one another. They had been praised in Ephesians 1 because of their love for all the saints. Now, that's not true. So they're not as mature as a congregation as they once were. So there is a warning here. And then the third realm where I'm going in terms of application is in the realm of, of broader culture in terms of a nation. And in this area, I'm looking at it in terms of our understanding of how a culture operates and what our our beliefs are. We're analyzing the premises and the presuppositions and the assumptions that characterize postmodern American pagan culture. And we see the implications of this shift in our culture as it as it's displayed in this particular study of the role of Christianity in the public life and in the realm of ideas in the nation. We have to remember a couple of principles whenever we get into this. Number one is that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Every nation is made up of people who are sinners. They're, they're under the control of sin nature. And because of that, there has to be some sort of level of control to restrain the sin nature. Where is that going to come from? In terms of the government, it comes from law enforcement. But as we noted last week with a quotation from John Adams, who was the second president of the United States, that if there is not something else that is informing the moral character of the individual, then there's no state strong enough to provide a restriction on the sin nature. Basically what he said. So the Founding Fathers recognized at the very core of a successful society there had to be the teaching of religion. And the point that I'm making is that 
Today we live in a world that wants to see this. They don't want to see a separation of church and state. They want to remove God from the scene. They want God talk to have no influence or relevance to anything that takes place on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't impact how we look at economics, how we look at law, how we look at science, how we look at uh, social structures such as marriage or family. We just remove God completely to the fringe of our thinking so that there are some people who want to talk about God, and that's fine, but just keep it at home. Don't bother the rest of us with that idea. And that is an illustration of what's happening in, uh, in Romans 1.18 in suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Now, having said that, I want to go through a cut some more quotes looking at how the founding fathers understood the role of religion. See, this is, and this shows right away that I'm in conflict with the trend of modern history. Because what modern history, what the, the way modern man looks at this is that it doesn't matter what the original intent was of the founding fathers. Uh, they, they might have thought one thing, we think something else. And so as long as the Constitution is just a fluid living document, and so all we need to do is look at it and interpret it for ourselves. Now, if you, we, you would apply that to the Bible, you would end up with religious liberalism, which is where you see a connection between religious liberal thought and political liberal thought, is there's ultimately a distancing from... God who informs as the source of, of, of absolutes. When I look at this, we're going to analyze the Constitution and understand what it means by the federal government not establishing a religion. We have to understand it in light of how the Founding Fathers talked about it and how they defined those terms. So I have a quote here from Patrick Henry who states that it cannot, quote, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists but by Christians, not on religion but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just secularists. There was a frame of reference for their political views, and that really rested on a whole tradition that went back to the Puritans. Now, there's many things in Puritan theology we may or may not agree with, but one of the things that the Puritans were convinced of was that the Bible gave us a foundation of thought for every area of life. And they, they pushed that as far as they could push it, and they gave us a foundation in understanding government because they looked at reality from a biblical viewpoint. Benjamin Franklin understood this. Now, I'm not sure if Franklin was a believer or not. Most of the quotes that you read that are attributed to Franklin that say that he was a deist were made when he was a very young man. I know he heard the gospel. He was a personal friend of the greatest evangelist of that time. The Billy Graham of that era was George Whitfield, who was a short, barrel-chested man who would stand up and preach the gospel to crowds of 15 to 20,000, and Franklin would stand on the edge of the crowd and could hear him as if he was standing next to him. That's without aid of electronic uh, devices such as microphones. And Franklin stated that if, that if men are so wicked with religion, what would they be without it? So there's a recognition that there had to be a source of values to control the sin of man. John Jay, another founding father, stated... Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and intent of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Now, we have to look at that phrase that he uses there, Christian nation. Now, it's not a nation can't be Christian in the sense an individual can because a nation isn't fallen or saved or regenerated. A nation doesn't have a soul. What he meant by this in the context is that this was a nation that was founded on principles that had their ultimate source in the Bible as opposed to Roman uh, precedents or Greek precedents or in just uh, straight rationalism or empiricism or enlightenment thought as its source in the, in the Bible. We concluded last time after we ran through various Statements made by the Founding Fathers related to and those who were involved in crafting the wording of the First Amendment 
that they understood that the Bible should be taught in public schools and that the Bible would be the source of character and values for the nation, without which the nation could not survive, could not be stable. We ended by looking at the few statements that George Washington made in his farewell address. He stated, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. In other words, he, according to Washington, there was an understanding that religion, and by religion they meant Christianity, and morality are indispensable. You can't separate the two. Once you lose, to put it in light of the diagram I used earlier, is if you cut God out of the picture, you're left with a morality that has no support. And then everything crumbles, comes crumbling down. And he says that if you do that, you're not a patriot. So that would impugn most of the Supreme Court justices we've had since World War II. Furthermore, he said... Whatever may be uh, conceded to the influence of refined education on minds, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. And see, there what he did was he grounded, the, grounded his argument on reason and experience. And I pointed out last time that the founding fathers were susceptible, just as we are, to the culture of our day. And this reflects the influence of the Enlightenment, that you can arrive at eternal truth apart from revelation. And he's establishing his argument on the basis of reason and experience. And that, more than anything, is what ate up within a generation, in fact, within a decade, Enlightenment, the danger of Enlightenment thought, thinking you can arrive at ultimate truth on the basis of reason and experience alone, was eating up. American culture. In fact, there were many of the founding fathers who were bemoaning the spiritual darkness in America by 1802-1803. And I'm convinced from the studies that I did a number of years ago that if the, the, the founding fathers had waited another 10 years before writing the Constitution, they never could have written the U.S. Constitution. There was a window of about 15 years there where, there, where a certain worldview dominated, and that was when that this came through. If they had tried it earlier, it never would have happened, they, they, and they did. They came up with the Articles of Confederation. If they had gone another ten years, the, the, things had already drifted, and they would have lost the moment. In conclusion, in quoting from uh, Washington, he says, Where is the security for life? for reputation and for property, if the sense of religious obligation deserts. He understood that without Christianity there could be no secure basis for property, life, or freedom. In fact, in his farewell address, four of his warnings related to losing a proper orientation to religion or Christianity. In that same generation, Robert Winthrop who was an early member of the House of Representatives, stated, quote, Men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by a power within them or by a power without them, either by the word of God or by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or by the bayonet. Crystal clear analysis. So you're either going to be controlled by an inter-virtue or integrity, that has to be grounded in an eternal source of absolutes, or you're going to be controlled by the state which puts itself in the place of God. Now, Jefferson understood this as well in the way he wrote this, the opening remarks in the Declaration of Independence, where he wrote, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator, with certain unalienable rights. Now, that's the key phrase. What both of these men, both Winthrop and Jefferson, recognize is that if those rights if the, and freedoms do not come from the Creator, then they come from somewhere inside the, that circle. And we come right back to this diagram. If freedom either has its source out here 
in God, and government is simply supporting what is already given. Or if you exclude God, and God is not the source of value and truth and absolutes, then truth and value and absolutes and freedom come from somewhere inside this circle. And so then it's up to whoever has the power to grant or take away that freedom. So once you remove eternal absolutes from the marketplace of ideas, then man is no longer answerable to God. Man is just becomes answerable to other men, and other men become the source of values and truth. And that's exactly where we are, and that takes you right back to tyranny. And that's why this case and these cases related to the First Amendment have been so crucial, because the foundation of our freedom is in a God who is absolutely free, who is outside the circle, who gives that to man, and human government then simply recognizes it. But when you remove God, then you're left with other human beings giving you freedom or taking away freedom, and that always deteriorates into tyranny. John Adams recognized this and said, Let the pulpit resound with the doctrine and the sentiments of religious liberty. By the way, he was politically on the opposite end of the spectrum from Jefferson. He said, Let us hear of the dignity of man's nature and the noble rank he holds among the works of God. Let it be known that liberties are not the grants of princes and parliaments. See, once we lose that, once you remove God, then you're only answerable to other human beings. Now, all of this that we see going on today is a product of trends that have been taking place for the last 200 years. The core issue in the debate today is this phrase that's been taken out of context, the wall of separation between church and state. The original source of that came in 1801. Jefferson is the anti-federalist, the Democrat, was elected to the presidency. And there was a situation in Connecticut that really, really aggravated all the Baptists up there. And there weren't a lot of Baptists up there in 1801 because the constitutionally, according to the state constitution of Connecticut, the constitutionally established religion or denomination was a Congregationalist. And the Congregationalists were the established denomination, which meant that when you paid your property taxes, that a certain percentage of your taxes went to the support of the Congregational Church. And that was true in a number of different colonies at that time. They did not view that as being in conflict with the First Amendment because the First Amendment simply prohibited the federal government from establishing a religion or a denomination, not the state governments. But the Baptists, and Baptist, one of the key elements in Baptists is that they believe in separation of church and state, a distinction between church and state and the freedom of the individual to practice his spiritual life according to the dictates of his own conscience. So the Baptists really chafed at the fact that the that the Congregationalists were in charge, and they had a federal, the Federalist political party was dominated in Hartford. Now, there was a way around it, and if you went through the, all the bureaucratic red tape, then some of your tax money could be rerouted back to your local Baptist church. But we all know how red tape and bureaucrats work, and it wasn't any different back then than it is now, and so they didn't get a lot of their money back. And so it was in that context that, uh, and the election of 1801 when an anti-federalist Jefferson becomes elected that they want to use him to influence the federalist state government in Hartford. But they know that he can't do anything more than use his position as the chief magistrate of the U.S. as a bully pulpit. Because he has no, according to the Constitution, he has no influence as a legislator. But they figured if we can get him on our side, he'll at least do something. That's what this whole thing was all about, was they just wanted to get not, they wanted to disestablish the congregational church. And that didn't happen for another, actually for another 20 or 25 years. I think the last state to disestablish a denomination occurred about 1822 or 1824. Incidentally, 
That was the context in which uh, Preston City Baptist Church was uh, was founded and established as they as a few Baptists were uh, few people were led to the Lord and became Baptists and in 1811 they were baptized in a lake that was across the street from where we lived up there and they cut through 18 inches of ice in the middle of February so that they could be baptized see they had the strength of their convictions and that laid the foundation from Preston City Baptist Church which changed its name to Preston City Bible Church in 1981. So now you know the rest of the story. Anyway, so Jefferson Jefferson responded to their letter. They were congratulating him on his election to president, and then they were just uh, appealing to him, and I have copies of this up here, and they were just appealing to him to use his his influence to change things. And in their letter, they said, "Sir, we are sensible that the President of the United States is not the national legislator and also sensible that the national government cannot destroy the laws of each state, but our, ho- our hopes are strong that the sentiments of our beloved President, which have had such genial effect already, like the radiant beams of the sun, boy, they're really smoking him, aren't they? Like the radiant beams of the sun will shine and prevail through all these states and all the world till hierarchy and tyranny be destroyed from the earth. So basically they were after him to influence, have some kind of influence uh, from his office to encourage the state governments to disestablish their religion. In his response, Jefferson wrote, Believing with you, I think I have part of this up here, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of the government reach actions only and not opinions. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people, which declared, and I lost part of that on the thing, which declare that their legislature should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. There's the sentence. Now, he's not arguing for the removal of religion or Christianity from the marketplace of ideas or from the schools or from government. And we know this because three days later, or two days later, after writing to the Danbury Baptist, Jefferson attended church services that were held in the House of Representatives, and he continued to be a regular attendee of those services throughout his presidency. Now, if he thought there should be a wall of separation, then he wouldn't attend. And throughout the 19th century, furthermore, throughout the 19th century, the federal government provided direct funding to numerous religious organizations. One example of this even occurred under Jefferson's presidency. Public money, tax money, was used to fund religious education for Indians. Uh, That's Native Americans for you politically correct types. And Jefferson, in fact, approved a treaty with the Kaskaskia Indians, which provided them an annual cash support of the tribe's Roman Catholic priest and church. And it was not until 1897 when aid for religious education for Indians reached $500,000 annually, the Congress decided to cease that action. Now, the point that I'm making there is at the very beginning, the government understood that it had a, invested, a vested interest in supporting religious education. And they paid for it out of tax dollars, and they even paid for Roman Catholic priests in education out of, out of tax dollars. Now, in 1878, there was a case called Reynolds versus the United States. And this was the first case that went in and referred to the wall of separation. And in that, and they quoted from, from the entire context of Jefferson's original letter, and then they summed up their decision. Congress was deprived of all legislative power over mere religious opinions but was left free to reach only those religious actions which were in violation of social duties or subversive of good order. 
In other words, they understood that, that the only place that the government had to remove anything religious was if it was putting on some sort of, uh, if the religion was promoting polygamy or human sacrifice or something of that, uh, of that nature. So throughout the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, no government in- entity understood that there should be this radical distinction between the teaching of Christianity or the use of Christian symbols in public places. It wasn't until after the Second World War that this changed, and the change occurred in the minority opinion written by Judge Hugo Black in the 1947 case, Everson versus the Board of Education. And in that case... Hugo Black wrote, quote, The First Amendment was erected as a wall of separation between church and state. That wall must be kept high and impregnable. Now, the interesting thing is to know the rest of the story on Hugo Black. And I'm taking this information from a new book that's hot off the press called Men in Black by Mark Levin. And it is a study of judicial activism uh, down through the history of this country. And in that, he writes that according to his biographer, Black wrote the majority opinion upholding the use of public funds to transport children to Catholic schools. Notice it was an issue related to Catholic schools. And he did so for the purpose of undercutting the true meaning of the religion clause. He did it in such a way as a very subtle attack, and he did it in such a way to set up the failure. And his biographer, Roger Newman, writes, uh, Black's opinion in Everson versus the Board of Education drew criticism from all quarters. Black's rhetoric and dicta contrasted too sharply with his conclusion and holding to satisfy anyone. If he had not written it as he did, he later said, that uh, Supreme Court Justice Jackson would have. So he writes it in such a way as to create this extreme position. Now, Levin goes on to point out that there was a hidden agenda going on, a darker motive behind uh, Hugo Black's agenda. He was appointed by... Uh, President Roosevelt, but he had earlier in his life been a member of the Ku Klux Klan, Klan, and his father was also a member of the Klan, and and the Klan is not only known because of their racist views, but they hated Catholics. Now, the case at point had to do with reimbursing parents who sent their children to a Catholic school for the cost of the bus fare to get to school. So it had to do with, with supporting Catholic children. And so he is, his latent anti-Catholicism comes to the surface. And in that he rewrites the, reinterprets the use of uh, this wall metaphor in, that Jefferson used in order to remove the, the, any kind of relationship between the, uh, between church and state. They, they, they can't have any, any overlap uh, whatsoever. This whole situation became uh, worse or intensified in subsequent decisions. For example, in the uh, June 25, 1962, Engel v. Vitale, which is where the court redefined the meaning of church in Jefferson's letter, so that it now means any kind of religious education as opposed to a specific denomination. And then in Stone versus Brown in 1980, the following was written, quote, if the posted, if the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read, meditate upon, perhaps to venerate and obey the commandments, which is not a permissible objective. See, they see the shift that's taking place from the founding fathers who wanted Christianity taught because this is the source of virtue and integrity so that you can have a stable society to where the courts are now saying we don't want anything there because, golly, it might encourage somebody to read the Bible and they might learn something. 
All of this reflects that for the past two, past at least 50 years, there has been a a shift of power in Washington from the legislative body, which represents people, to a judicial activism. Concerning this, Thomas Sowell writes, quote, while people in various countries in the Middle East are beginning to stir as they see democracy start to take root in Iraq, our own political system is moving steadily in the opposite direction toward rule by unelected judicial ayatollahs acting like ayatollahs in Iran. I thought that just fit the moment. This was the same thing Jefferson noted years ago. The Constitution is a mere thing of wax in the hands of a judiciary, which they may twist and shape into any form they please. You see, this is where it's deteriorating. But it's nothing new. And what they're doing is, at the very core, is they're rewriting history. Now, that's not unique either. One of the first examples of historical revisionism to justify a theological shift takes place in 1 Kings chapter 12. So turn, as we wrap things up tonight, I want you to look at this great example in 1 Kings chapter 12. The situation is that the northern kingdom, which becomes known as Israel, separates out from the southern kingdom of Judah. God has actually pronounced this as an act of divine discipline on the house of David because of Solomon's sin. And he had warned Solomon earlier in chapter 11 that because of the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, because he married so many wives, he had uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines, and I've always wanted to know why a man with 700 wives would want 300 concubines. And he, with all of the foreign wives that he married, introduced all their foreign idolatry into Israel. And so God told him that because of that, he was going to take the kingdom from the house of David. But he wouldn't do it completely. And he couldn't do it completely because God had promised David that he would have an eternal dynasty. And so God says, I will rip ten of the, nation, ten of the uh, uh, tribes from you. And so this comes to pass in chapter 12. And actually in chapter 11, from verse 26 and following, Jeroboam is singled out by God, and Ahijah the prophet comes to Jeroboam to tell him that God has chosen him to lead the ten nations in the north. And in verse 38, God makes a remarkable promise to Jeroboam. He says, Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David. That's remarkable. God says, I'll make the same kind of deal with you. I will make your house a dynasty just as I did for David, if you will obey me. That's the background. But look at what Jeroboam does. When Jeroboam takes over in the north, he builds or actually rebuilds Shechem as his capital in the mountains of Ephraim, which is not that far from Jerusalem, maybe about 50 miles. And, he go, and verse 25 tells us he rebuilt Shechem and Peniel. And in verse 26, we understand his motivation. He said in his heart, see, he's thinking. And he recognizes, he's looking at his political situation, and he thinks, well, there's a law that we're supposed to follow back. If I do what God said to do, I've got to implement this law back in Deuteronomy and recognize there's only one central place of worship, and that's in, in Jerusalem. Now, if all my people trek down there six times a year for those feasts, then they're going to go down and they're going to see all the glory of the temple. They're going to see all that gold. They're going to see the glory of the house of David. And my power base is going to be threatened. So rather than trust God to fulfill his promise... He's going to reject God, he's going to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and he's going to, and to do that, he has to rewrite history. See, you can't, as soon as you start rejecting God, you have to rewrite history to write God out of history. And this is what happens in verse 27. This is his rationale. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Verse 28, Therefore the king asked advice, 
He made two calves of gold and said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. See, it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that brought you up from the land of Egypt. We're going to do a little revision of the whole Exodus story, and now it's these golden calves. Now, where do you get the idea for the golden calves? Well, after Ahijah told him that he was going to get the ten, ten, um, ten nations in the north, Solomon sought to kill him, so he evacuated from Israel, and he headed to Egypt. And while he was in Egypt, he imbibed human viewpoint religion. It's sort of like what's happened at some of our conservative seminaries when, when they have sent uh, professors to the liberal universities of Europe for training. They've come back and they've imbibed a lot of paganism while they've gone to the Oxford and Cambridge and, and Tübingen and Basel and Edinburgh, and that had these ideas have seeped in and eroded the theological orthodoxy of uh, our conservative seminaries. This is what he did. He picked up religious ideas and he came back because this idea of uh, calf gods are literally bull gods, just like Aaron. That's what he's doing. He's going back to what Aaron did. And he's, uh, he's, he, when he re- redefines history, he's also making a religious statement. History and, Christ- and truth in terms of Christianity are interconnected. So the first thing he does is he re- restructures history. It wasn't the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who did it. It was these calves. The next thing he did was he sets up competing religious sites. He introduces ecumenical religion. One in Bethel in the south, so that if you were going to head south to Jerusalem, you would go through Bethel. Why go all the way to Jerusalem? We have a, we have a temple right here. Or if you lived way up north, he made one convenient for them too in Dan. In verse 30 it says, Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He also made shrines, in verse 31, on the high places, and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. So he sets up a competitive priesthood. In fact, Chronicles tells us that he ran all the Levites out of the northern kingdom. They all moved down south. And he sets up a completely different priesthood. Anybody could be a priest, including himself which is what we see on verse, in verse 32 and 33. And as part of his being a priest, he establishes a whole new calendar, which is the same kind of thing the French did in the French Revolution. They tried to redetermine the calendar. They went on a 10-day work week instead of a 7-day work week, things of that nature. So Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. What's he doing? He's acting like a priest, but he's not a Levite. So he sets up a competing religious system. The foundation of all of this, of course, is the historical revision. Well, now, what am I saying? I'm saying that this is the orientation of the carnal mind to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not just somebody else, folks. It's also us. Every time we sin and get into self-justification, we want to rewrite our own history. We want to suppress the truth in unrighteousness so that we can get away with the sin in our own life. You can extrapolate that to the larger group of the congregation. And that's why Jesus Christ warns the Ephesian church that you need to remember the former things. That's history. That is the micro-history of their congregation. Remember the former things and repent and do the things that you did at first. That's why history is important. History is the outworking of God's plan. And then we see it in the macrocosm of national history or the history of the world that what happens when nations want to reject God and operate on their own autonomy, what they do is they rewrite history to write God out of the picture so we're not accountable to God for our laws, we're not accountable to God for our values, and the consequence to that is always going to be divine judgment on that culture. And that's exactly where we are, and we see this uh, so clearly today in this, this battle over whether or not to have the Ten Commandments even displayed in a local court. Because what is being said symbolically is that the source of law isn't in an objective God, but the source of law is in the government. And once you make that shift, then you are on the slippery slope to tyranny and the loss of freedom. But it doesn't just happen 
in the national life. Because when you and I in our own spiritual life get involved in that same slippery slope of not remembering in terms of our own Christian life and get on that slippery slope of historical revisionism where it leads in our life is to the tyranny of the sin nature. And we'll come back next time and we'll look at the challenge that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to each of us to be overcomers in advance in the spiritual life at the end of this epistle with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by these things this evening, to be willing to think a little more deeply and a little more profoundly about what you said in your word and about your impact on history and indeed in our own lives. We pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. It's based on faith alone in Christ alone. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone, and at that instant you have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.